Welcome to That'll Preach, a weekly show on the Four Oaks Midtown podcast. I'm Brian, joined with Paul. Uh, Paul, how you doing? You always switch the preposition that you use. Sometimes you say joined with Paul. Sometimes you say joined by Paul. I just want some consistency it's here, Brian. It's the same Brian. thing. What's it's the, not. Wait, what are you talking about? What's the difference between those two? Joined by Paul? Joined, joined by Paul, with Paul? Paul. You're not joined with Paul. No, I am conjoined to you. Paul and I are conjoined <laughs> twins. I won't tell you where we're joined. Uh, that got weird. That Yeah. That I'm wasn't sorry. what you meant, though, but I'm that's sorry. okay. I'm sorry. Joined with Paul. I'm sorry. But uh, it's but kind anyway, of a muggy yeah. day outside. It's, it's gross. It's not so nice at all. We kind of feel muggy right now. But hopefully I, by I the don't, time. but okay. Well, Okay, fine. <laughs> Life's perfect for Paul. It's been gross this whole weekend. It has been. It just, it's just a weird thing. But April we are showers. here podcasting, yeah. and we're going to have a good time, and we're going to dive back into Mere Christianity. We've been taking a leisurely stroll through this book, <laughs> but I think that's the way you got to do it, because C.S. Lewis writes so precisely, so oh, densely. Man, yeah. There's so much in here. You can't skim read it. There's a lot. can't read it at two times speed or however you'd want to do it. And, well, you uh, can if you go back you and can. do it again, in That's which case true. then you'll have read it once. Oh. <gasps> wow. Whoa. <laughs> I feel like we just went back in time. That was amazing. I feel like we just went back in time. See what you did there? <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, if you've been following along with us, we're going to be in book four and uh, yeah. taking our time, just moving through some of these great themes from this great author classic Christian book. Mm -hmm. But uh, we want to start off with a hot take. Paul is going to give us a hot take. Yep. And he is going to shock us with the controversial nature of what he's about to say. I don't even know what he's going to say, but I'm sure it's going to be controversial. Go. For a second, I almost forgot what I was going to say. Here it is. Uh, sprinkles add nothing to whatever you put them on. <laughs> agree. No, I agree. Like you put them on ice cream. I agree. And sometimes agree. they don't even taste like anything. It's not even like added sugar. It's it's a texture it thing is. at best. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's just like, they kind, they're kind of weird. They get stuck in your teeth. I'd just rather have the ice cream with nothing on top. Are sprinkles actually sugar? Like I, I mean, think I it is it just sugar, but is it It's just like solidified yeah. crystal yeah. sugar things, sugar Sugar's, particles. I keep reading about how sugar's terrible for you. It is. What does it do? Why is sugar terrible? For, terrible I don't know, but all I know is that like, you ever seen those documentaries that are like in the mid 20th century? <laughs> Everyone was against fats. Yeah. And they were like, Every, sugar's fine, but it turned right. out that actually it was fats that were good for you and sugar was the yeah, bad thing. But in thing. another 20 years, they're going to fl flip it back. So I'm trying to be ahead of the curve. It's okay. You see what I'm saying? I don't think that's the way to listen to science. Well, regardless, okay. I'm, sure, I'm sure there's very little... Fat in sprinkles? Well, very little nutritional value in sprinkles whatsoever. No, probably negative. <laughs> it probably detracts from your... <laughs> yeah, I know. But that is true. I agree. Sprinkles on ice cream, sprinkles on frozen yogurt, sprinkles... I mean, if you put really... sprinkles on your frozen yogurt at whatever, also, I'm going to like, judge you, what are you so five? hard. five? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Can you imagine being a grown man going up being like, oh, can you add sprinkles to this? You'd be like... I feel like if you ordered like the, the ice cream cone at McDonald's as a grown man, people would look at you weird as well. But that doesn't stop people from doing it. I, McDonald's I, I, soft serve ice cream is actually really good. That could be another you just, hot This take. is a personal thing. You're like, you're like, you're like oh, I don't think it's that weird. I don't think it's that I mean, I, I think you could be a man. And in fact, I think it makes you more manly. If you when was the last time you had one of the McDonald's soft serves? Oh, I don't... I they're mean, incredible. I'm not they're really, so good. I'm not an ice cream. I, I mean, I can appreciate ice cream, but I don't go out of my way to get ice cream. So I really. But you're. I don't actually. We had Froyo a couple weeks ago. You like that. That's not ice cream. 
It's, it's, it's sophisticated. You're right. It's millennial ice cream. It is. It's millennial ice cream. It's less fat, less sugar, and less tasty. Let's admit it. Froyo is not as good as ice oh, cream. Oh, Froyo is delicious. It's delicious, but it's not as delicious well, as ice cream. I, I, so to answer your question, I haven't had a, I don't know if I've, if, if I've had a McDonald's, what, what's it called? Soft, Soft serve? serve? Yeah. Probably not since I was a kid. I mean, wow. honestly, I don't, I don't, you know. Although Wait. I have gotten ice cream from Jason's Deli. Oh, I've never been to Jason's Deli. got a little ice cream machine, so if it's there, I'm like, oh, I'll take some, you know. Interesting. But I don't really, like, <clears throat> I don't go out of my way to get ice cream. Did I you, can appreciate it, though. When you were a kid, did you guys have, like, like ice cream trucks in your neighborhood? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like Mr. Softies? Oh, man. When you Those hear, were amazing. Yeah. The when, whole, all the neighborhood kids would run out. Oh, that's like a childhood memory. Yeah. You're just playing out with your friends the and you summer, hear the da, 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 Slightly da, da, creepy. Da, da. I know, right? <laughs> it is. But then you, you're, you're just like, oh, man. It's like, this is it. Like, it's such an exciting moment. It was. And I remember like being so bummed if you didn't have money or you knew your parents weren't going to buy for you. You'd just be like, oh, this is going to be torture. I don't even want to be here when these kids get their ice cream. What you know? kind of horrible childhood did you have, Brian? <laughs> I mean, it's just one of those hot summers, and you try to figure out what, what do you what do you want to get. You know, you always get the regular, like you just get the soft serve ice cream cone right, well, they had like, with the dipping and the cherry sauce. Uh, oh, that was so good! I actually had one like over the summer when I was visiting my parents in New York, and I was blown away at how expensive they were. They're like four or five dollars now because that was when like it used to be like a dollar. Dairy well, free. Yeah. It's still, I mean, I don't Gluten know, free. It's still delicious. We've had like so many hot takes in the last five minutes. I feel like we went from sprinkles to McDonald's to Mr. Softies to Brian's childhood. But I agree, sprinkles are irrelevant. All right, and, and not only that, they probably detract. Probably because they get stuck in your teeth I and agree. all that stuff. Well, speaking of another uh, hot take, Lewis has a little bit of a hot take Ooh. on theology and doctrine. He does. So, in Book Four of Mere Christianity, in the first section, he he begins by talking about theology as the science of God. Mm -hmm. and, but he begins by saying, everyone has warned me not to tell you what I'm going to tell you <laughs> in this last book. Why does he say that? Probably because they, they imagine that the average normal person doesn't care about theology. Right. Like, just be practical. It just, seems just tell abstract. us how to live our lives. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's like, what, why are we talking about these things when right. there's actual issues that I mm -hmm. need to deal with in my life and my family. Yep. Um, but it seems like it's that sentiment, why bother with theology, why care about this at all, that Lewis is taking amen, saying, well, let's let's think about this. And and I think that that's, that is something that Lewis does really well. I mean, mm -hmm. when you read his stuff, he's just, he's always looking right under the surface of the things that we say or the things that we assume. Yeah. So he's doing that in terms of maybe a strand of anti-intellectualism maybe, mm -hmm. Or a distrust of anything related to doctrine or, or an over dogma. pragmatism, over, over practical. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, so he starts to unpack okay, what are we talking about when we talk about theology? And mm -hmm. uh, he uses the example of uh, an old, hard bitten officer <laughs> who gets up and says, I have no use for all that stuff, speaking about theology. Mm -hmm. But mind you, I'm a religious man too. I know there's a God. I've felt him out alone in the desert at night. The tremendous mystery. And that's just why I don't believe all your neat little dogmas and formulas about him. To anyone who's met the real thing, they all seem so petty and pedantic and unreal. How often do we hear that? I was just going to say that is a yeah. very, people sort of say, well, wh <clears throat> why do you have to do theology? It's mm -hmm. more about experiencing God and knowing God. Yeah. And one, it's like, why do those 
why are those two things viewed in opposition to right. one another? They're not mutually exclusive. Right. Mm-hmm. And two, it, it, it is a bit of a pharisaical kind of arrogant attitude. Yeah. One might say, well, you think this because you know all these theological doctrines about God that you look down on other people. Well, that's certainly a temptation and, and you shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. But there's a there's a opposite temptation to say, <laughs> well, because I'm such a, I'm just, I just re- call it like it is. I'm a simple guy, yeah. experienced God. You just are worried about these abstract ideas. That too is a form of Phariseeism where you're looking down on other people yeah. for not having the same experience as you. Mm-hmm. And so the solution, we, we want to do whatever makes us not look down on one another at all. Yeah. And I think Lewis is trying to uh, bring some clarity to why theology and doctrine matters without negating the, the experience. The experience. Yeah. Well, and he 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 gives us answers to the roles of both. So he says experience has its role, and learning theology and doctrine has its role. And here's where he gives his famous example of. So imagine you're you're walking on the beach. Uh, there you have an experience of the wind and the water and the sand and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and then you look at a map. The map is going to pale in comparison to your experience on the beach there, right? Sure. So the map of the beach is one thing. Your experience of the beach is another. You might think that like my experience of the beach is more lively and colorful and energetic and more fun and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, yeah, that's great. Like, you know, think of your experience with God like that. It it does have this colorful, experiential, amazing dimension to it. But now let's say like you want to get from one place to another. Just having that experiential aspect is not going to help you navigate from point A to point B. That's where you need the map. So maps have their role in telling you how to get from one place to another in, in sort of telling you like what else is out there beyond your own perspective, right? Because hundreds and thousands of people have, have, have put their experiences into the map. And so the map is, is a bunch of other people's views and time-tested uh, depictions of what the area looks like. So you don't have to just go off your own experience to navigate so it's not, he's not pitting them against one another, but he's putting them in their proper role, that the experience right. has one role and the theology has another role. You would never say, well, because I've been to the ocean, I don't need a map. Right. Yeah. It's just the wrong question. And yeah. you would never confuse the map with the ocean, but exactly. those two things are meant to work together. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I like what you pointed out, and this is really what Lewis is getting at, where, where Lewis himself talks about how the map is based on what hundreds and thousands of people have found out by sailing the real Atlantic. Hmm. So really when you kind of poo-poo you know, doctrine, or when you look down on church history, or the, or the church fathers, or the mm-hmm. people who have come before us, you're you're really saying that their experience didn't really matter, right? Or my experience, or my has experience it all. has it all, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so you need a map. Number one, you need a map, right, to right. understand and experience the ocean. And two, you need to see what other people have drawn out in their map. Right. You, you need to see the, sort of the. The, the culmination of all of these generations of people who have sailed those same seas. And mm-hmm. it's the same way with theology and Christianity. Right. There are you know millions of people who have experienced knowing God and thought through doctrine and, mm-hmm. and studied the scriptures, and their voice is important right. to inform your life and to, to pit yours against theirs by saying, well, they wrote, I don't even know what you would say, that because it's written down or because it's old yeah, that it, yeah. it doesn't have any relevance and that what you experience immediately is more important and again it's it's about it's not about eliminating one it's about putting things in perspective mm-hmm. saying yes by all means you need to 
know God and to have a living relationship with God. But yeah. that requires you knowing who God is, what he actually requires of you. And it it stands on the shoulders of all those who have also interacted with God beforehand. Yeah. yeah. And so we want to avoid arrogance on both sides, mm -hmm. arrogance in your uh, knowledge of doctrine merely, but also arrogance in sort of an anti-doctrine outlook that right, elevates right. personal experience as if it's the ultimate arbiter of truth. Well, I mean, imagine like, so the map can also tell you while you're on the beach that if you go beyond a certain point, there's, you know, it's no longer shallow or it's dangerous and there are really sharp, craggy rocks and cliffs and things like that. Or, um, yeah, so, so there like it maps also place constraints on where you're going to have a good experience, right? So they tell you like, if you want to actually experience the beauty of the beach, then you stay in this, you know, between these two points. And if you go beyond that, it's going to be rough. And so we, we've used this metaphor before, like when we talked about the creeds, how like the, the theology of the church maps out the space of this is, this is where God is. And if we go beyond that, we're not talking about God anymore. If we go beyond this, we're being heretical. We're saying things that aren't quite right. We're, you know, putting our faith in jeopardy. We're, you know, so, so that, that kind of like, again, so it's not pitting them against one another. Your experience of God is only going to be a good experience if it's in the proper confines, right? So even that, Theology lays out the proper confines of true experiences of God so that we don't say, you know, believe something of God that's not true, or it could even hurt our experience of God. And, and we might physically and emotionally feel terrible and feel like God's not with us, for example, if we have a wrong conception of God. And so theology is hugely practical in that way as well, in the same way that a map is hugely practical to our lives. So it's not just abstract. It's not just theoretical. Right, and it has to be put into practice. Mm -hmm. And but but kind of going back to what you're saying, where you know, there's Lewis talks about the specificity of the Christian religion. Yeah, right? he says mm -hmm. that you basically says that you can't settle for vague religion. Right, all f about feeling God in nature and so on. And it's very attractive. And he says, why why is that kind of uh, common uh, refrain? I, this would be his version of the modern version of. Um, I am spiritual but not religious. Yeah, yeah. And what usually people usually mean is I've had these sort of transcendent that uh, transcendent experiences or whatever. I've had these emotional experiences, mm -hmm. but I don't like being part of an organized group or, or being told, you know, this is, you know, right or this is wrong. Mm -hmm. So they they want to take that part out of it, and, and so they would say that's simply spirituality. Yeah. But Lewis says, well, look, that kind of thing uh, is all thrills and no work. Mm -hmm. It's like watching the waves from the beach. Yep. Um, and that's exactly right. Um, he says, you don't get eternal life simply by feeling the presence of God in flowers or music. And neither will you get anywhere by looking at maps without going to sea, nor will you be very safe if you go to sea without a map. Hmm. So it's both. It's, it's um, this deep understanding that when we talk about God, we have to talk about him based upon how he reveals himself. Right. And he reveals himself in a very specific way, in the person of Jesus Christ mm -hmm. and in the scriptures. So it's not all feeling about God and nature and whatever, because ultimately then it becomes all about how you feel in a particular moment. Right. Right. And that's why it's attractive. I think it plays to our basis desires hmm. to sort of be our own gods. Right. But he's trying to say to us, well, no, look, the map helps you understand 
the actual terrain. It actually yeah, helps you yeah. understand where you're <clears> going <throat> and who God actually is. And that's why you need it. It's almost like, so imagine, uh, imagine a child who grows up and has never met his father. His father passed away when he was really young, but his father left a bunch of letters for him. And there the father details accounts from his own life and tells him stories and anecdotes and truths and wisdom and things like that. And imagine that child going like, like, I just prefer the memories or like, I prefer thinking about, and I prefer, you know, I don't want to read the letters because that's, you know, that's stuffy and confining. And, you know, they're like, if, if the child never reads the letters, if he's never relying on something external and objective to ground his, his view of his father there, it seems like he's, he's going to have a view of his father that's untethered from reality. It's just going to be, he can come up with whatever idea he wants. He could imagine, like my dad was a, was a space, you know, astronaut, whatever. When in reality, his father was, you know, maybe he was a carpenter or a baker, right? So, so they're like, if you truly want to know who someone is, then you allow them to tell you. And so they place restrictions on what you're allowed to think about them. So in the same way, we can't just think whatever we want about God because God is a specific way and he's revealed himself to us in a specific way. And that's helpful for us. It helps us think about God as he actually is. And so our, our thoughts about God don't just become untethered from reality. And it's not just sort of in anything goes. And I love this where Lewis says that it's impossible to not do theology. Anytime you have thoughts about God, it is theology by definition. So you can't say like, I don't want to do theology. I just want to like have my spirituality, have my experience. That is theology. If you have this idea of God as unbounded, he's just this experiential depth, the feeling of transcendence inside me, There, that's, that's theology. Right. So the difference is not do theology versus no theology. It's do good theology versus bad theology. Sure, it's sure. inevitable. Well, and he talks about how many of the great ideas about God, which are trotted out or sorry, a great many of the ideas about God, which are trotted out as novelties today, hmm. are simply the ones which real theologians tried centuries ago and rejected. Yeah. <laughs> and that is a great oh, line man. because there really is nothing new under the sun. Yep. People are denying the deity of Christ, the humanity mm -hmm. of Christ, the authority of scripture, all these, the existence of God. I mean, these are things that people have been objecting to for, for many generations and we just sort of keep making the same mistakes again. Mm -hmm. And it's just, Every new book that tries to rethink the Christian faith and rework this and reimagine this, and you read it and you're just like, oh, this is just a, re a, 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 yep. a remixed Arianism, remixed, <laughs> right? Or this is a, a, a you know a remixed uh, kind of you know mysticism or something like that. You just look at all these things and you look back in church history and they're like, well, we already dealt with something like mm -hmm. this, yeah, and so. The pressure to reinvent the wheel, the pressure to, to feel like it's up to this current generation to yeah. defend the faith. When in reality, we have a, we have a cloud of witnesses, right, just like right. Hebrews 11 talks about, that is there that we can stand upon. And that we shouldn't get so bent, over shape, bent out of shape when we see sort of these novelties, these aberrations from proper theology, because we should just go, well, this has always been this way. Yeah, yeah. Right? And we don't need to be enamored by, you know, how you know, appealing it is in terms of, you know, how it makes us feel or the aesthetic of it or whatever, mm. we still need to recognize, hey, if these are just repackaged false teachings, we need to be aware of that. Yeah, yeah. And it's here where, where Lewis kind of pivots and says, okay, so, so if Christianity is not just this anything goes, 
another alternative, it, it, it could be just this like, it's about advice. And so Jesus is this really good moral teacher. Uh, and so he's given us great moral advice on how to live. And if everybody abided by what he said, society would be an amazing place. And, and that's, that's true. Like if everybody abided by the Sermon on the Mount and turned the other cheek and all this sort of stuff, society would be great. But he says, well, I mean, that the thing is, human beings are never going to, one, human beings are never going to get to that point where right. we like, follow all of Jesus' teachings. But two, also, that the point of Jesus' teachings is not just a kind of like, let's make society cohesive, right? Right. So he says that um, the point of Christianity, which gives us the greatest shock, is the statement that by attaching ourselves to Christ, we can become sons of God. And so this is where he pivots in the chapter and talks about uh, this. So this this chapter is called the begetting, not making. And so here he's going to talk about, you know, some of the mysterious son of God, Trinity type stuff. And yeah, I mean, he asks that question, like, aren't we all sons of God? Like, what does it mean to be a son of God? What do we do with that, Brian? Well, the words begetting and begotten are very key. Yeah. And uh and it's, and, and it's actually kind of, I'm a little, the way Lewis works through it, it's a little. It's interesting. Yeah, it interesting. is interesting. Yeah. Um, basically, well, maybe we'll work through how Lewis kind of works through it. Sure. He, he talks about how to beget is to become something, or to become the father of something, right? Yeah. Just as being, uh, to create is to make, mm -hmm. right? When you beget, you create something of the same kind as yourself. Right. Yeah. So a man begets human babies, a beaver begets little beavers, <clears throat> and a bird begets eggs, which turn into little birds. But when you make, you make something of a different kind than yourself. Right. Yeah. So he takes that and he says, well, let's apply that to how God, the, the triune life of God, and then God and his creatures. Mm -hmm. So he says, when God in the Trinity, he begets the son, he's mm -hmm. saying that the son is of the same substance as right. him. Right. So the son, son of God is God. So God begets God. Right. Uh, and the whole idea is just as a man begets a man who's the same kind as him. Yep. God, if God's going to have a son, the son is going to be the same kind right. as God. Yeah. Right. Uh, but that's different than God creating man because God, when God creates us, he's not begetting us in that sense. He's right, creating right. a different order, a different kind of creature. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, <clears throat> I think begetting, it, it still gets tricky because we're not saying that God created like the one difference would be a man exists and then his son exists at a time after. There was right. a time when the son didn't exist. Yeah. We don't want to say that about Jesus and the father. There was never a time when Jesus didn't exist. But that that's <laughs> exactly his point. Because if God begets God, then that means right. everything well, that true. is true of God true. is true be, of whatever yeah, is begotten true. as well. So, he would have to be eternal. Yeah. Right. And that's a good, right. So exactly. That, right. His, his point there is he's trying to, I mean, it is. Like this, this is really abstract, but Lewis's point here is he, so in the Nicene Creed, we say, uh, G, the son of God is begotten of the father, but not made. Right. And that clause there is supposed to mean that God, the father doesn't make the son in sort of like the, he's the foremost or the first of creatures. Like this is the ancient heresy of Arianism there. That begetting relation is God, whatever God begets has to also be God. And so whatever is true of God the Father, if God the Father begets the Son, then everything that's true of God the Father is true of God the Son. Right. That means eternal, right. pure light, pure God, everything. Right. And so that so that so that is key. It, it, it shows us that Jesus, the Son of God, 
in all of his existence throughout eternity is not created and everything that's true of the father is true of him. And so it's not a making relationship. It's not like when I make a book or a, or a, or a, or a you know, I can't think of anything. If I make a computer, if I make whatever, uh, everything that I make is going to have different properties than me and it's going to look different. Um, so it's a different kind of thing. And so there that like, uh, I mean, we've, we've used this analogy before. I think the idea of begetting something that's eternal could just be a kind of like causal uh, relationship. Right. right. That so the father yeah. eternally generates right. the son. And that's the, the whole, because again, so we could even imitate Lewis here. Why does that matter? Why are we dealing with yeah. this? Well, because when God reveals himself to humans, mm-hmm. he reveals himself as father, son, and Holy Spirit. Yep. Now, if we are to trust that revelation, if God says, I am the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that means that, that that's who he has to be in all eternity. Right. It can't mm-hmm. be that he was one God, and then when he created us, he decided, I'm going to appear to them as three. Exactly. Because then we don't actually know God. Mm-hmm. We know a projection, a facade of God. Right. Right. But if we really look into the eyes of Jesus and see God, mm-hmm. that means the Son has always been God, the Spirit has always been God, and the Father has always been God. Yep. Now, if that's the case, if those are his actual names, Father, Son, and Spirit, mm-hmm. they have to mean something. Right. It can't be arbitrary. Mm-hmm. God couldn't have been like, but you could also call me one, two, and three. Or you could also call me, you know, star, circle, and square. God. Or I don't know, something <laughs> like, it, it's not arbitrary. <laughs> yeah. I want you to call me father because I am a father. Mm-hmm. I want you to call me the son because I am actually a son. Yeah. Right. And so those words actually have to mean something. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of ways that we can go wrong. Right. So there's, you know, there's one intuitive way to think about the father-son relationship as, well, you know, the father created the son. Right. And so this is what Arius taught. And this is, a lot of Muslims have this conception of, if Jesus is the son of God, then that means that the son had to have come into existence. There was some point in time where the son of God didn't exist. So it is a very natural way of reading it. But the scriptures and the history of the church teach us that that is an inappropriate way right. of looking at the nature of right. God. So we need to rule that out and go a little bit more nuanced and say, okay, what like let's try to be careful here. Right. Let's understand God as He is, as as He's revealed Himself to us. So how do you how do you distinguish the members of the Trinity mm-hmm. without denying that each one is each eternal, one is eternally yeah. God? Yeah, and so that's where those relationships come in. Mm-hmm. So the Father begets the Son, but the Son doesn't beget the Father. Right. You can say one thing about the Father that you can't say about the Son, mm-hmm. right? And so that's and then. You can actually legitimately say that he's the son because he really is a son. He really right. does have a father. He really does receive his life from another. Mm-hmm. And the father really is a father because he really does give his life to another. Yeah. Right? Uh, but you can say that while also recognizing the kind of life that they have is the life of God, is mm-hmm. eternal life. And yeah. now this gets a little abstract, but I want to, in John 5, 26, Jesus talks and says, for as the father has life in himself. Now, what he means by that is, the Father has eternal life. He is the source of all life. Yeah, He is life itself. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's not like God is here and then He and then He takes on this thing called life. Yeah, right. But that that His life is not dependent upon anything else. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. The Father is independent, the source of all life. Right. Right. But then Jesus says, "So He, the Father, has granted the Son also." To have life mm-hmm. in himself. Yeah. So if you want to follow it here, the father has a life 
mm-hmm. that is the life of God, this eternal, uh, uh, independent life yep. that's not dependent on anything else. And he gives that life to, to the son. And that son has that same eternal independent life as well. Mm. So it's it's the son's receiving this life, but this life is in himself. In himself. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm trying to think of the easiest way to put it, but it's whatever life the father has, mm-hmm. the son has too. Yeah. But the father has it in principle, and the son has it by eternally receiving it from the father. <laughs> yes, that is that is that is the best way to put it. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so there you have, it's the same life because they're both God, mm-hmm. but uh, there is a distinction yep. in, I guess you could call the order of how that works yes. in the Trinity. But you have to have those two in mm-hmm. tension. Now, again, what does this have to do with theology? Well, a lot, because Jesus said it. And mm-hmm. what he's trying to show is, he's trying to show his relation to the Father, but also trying to show why he was the one who was sent. Yeah, Because the Father is 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 giving life to the son mm-hmm. and so so that the, the son can be the one to give life to us yep right so it's it's going outwards mm-hmm. so it's fitting that it would be the son that comes to us yeah now this goes way beyond what lewis is talking about but i think it it captures the essence of like why do we talk about this and maybe to go back to the map analogy mm-hmm. you might be looking at a map that people from generations past have used mm-hmm. And you might be going, why do they have these little marks on here? And why yeah. do they have these patterns? This yep. is kind of, just makes, this makes it all cluttered. I just need to know where the entrance to this island is and where the exit is or whatever. Yep. But you don't realize that those are hundreds of people who have gone there and they've mapped out the rocky regions. Yep. They've mapped yep. out the dangerous parts. They've mapped out exactly where the right. sharks are. Mm-hmm. And you may not know that you need those markings until you get in trouble, mm-hmm. right? And those are markers for you so you don't have to keep making the same mistakes. They've marked out the nearest Froyo place. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So that's what the creeds and confessions are. Mm-hmm. They're marks on the map to warn us of ways that we can go offshore or yeah. ways that we can get run into trouble before we even realize we could run out, run into trouble and not not just warnings but so so we've been talking about this mostly in these negative terms but there is like also a um it, it reminds us of god's grandness and and the inability of our minds to completely exhaustively grasp god's nature so sometimes we think like we've we've totally got our thumb on God's nature. We know God's a trinity, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You know, we say these sort of things and it can almost become like rote or, or, or boring. And uh, we go like, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's who God is. But in these moments of like when you really sit down and like wrestle with the concept of the trinity and the relations of the Father to the Son, Son to the Spirit, Spirit to the Father, um, it reminds us again of like the finitude of our own minds, the, the the grandness of God that, you know, we all like, you won't be able to explain quantum mechanics to a four-year-old. I mean, that's true. Uh, God, like explaining God, the nature of God to a human mind is like orders of magnitude more difficult sure. than that kind of project. Sure. And so it is, I mean, it like Calvin talked about how studying theology is awe-inducing. It, it should put us in awe of God. When, when, we, when we look at his nature, when we go like, man, God is just like, like super unfathomable. And I, I, my mind can't even grasp what that even looks like. Like they're both eternal, but the father gives his life to the son, but it's not a temporal thing. And like, wow, like there, it, it should humble us and induce us to worship. And that inducing to worship is so key mm-hmm. 
Because to do that, and this is again, this is the map analogy, yeah. right? You need to have a map to lead you into how to properly worship God, but that should not, the map is not worshiping God. You need to actually right. use it to take you somewhere. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about, yes, there is this mystery in God, but just because there's a mystery in God, just because he's, we can't exhaustively know him doesn't mean we can't truly know him. Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, we can't trust anything he reveals to us. Mm -hmm. So like you were saying, explaining quantum physics to, or quantum mechanics or whatever you said, <laughs> yeah. to a four-year-old, yeah. of course you can't say that, but you can teach them basic things about like cause and effect. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and so, or you, you <clears> know, <throat> a, a child, you know, might not know, how, like example, how would you, like what would it mean to teach a child how a microwave works? Right. Well, on one level, you could talk about all the radiation and how it's mm -hmm. bouncing off particles and the yeah. electricity and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Or you could be like, here, you take this and you put it in the <laughs> microwave and you press a button. Yep. Now, Step one. You're still telling them sure. how it works, but you're telling them on a different level. Yeah. It's still true what you tell them on the most basic level, mm -hmm. but there's more to it than that. Yeah. But it's appropriate for where they're at. Sure. There's more to it that they can't totally understand. But that doesn't mean that level one is somehow false or that... They can't use a microwave until they know how it's radioactive particles work. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know if microwaves work that way. So you, <laughs> yes, you can tell. Probably when, not. <laughs> when the proton collides with the electro flanoscope and the, you know. <laughs> I wonder if you stuff. actually believe that. You might. I probably do. Um, I believe anything. Right, going back to the, the actual begetting uh, trinity discussion, Lewis wants to use all of that to talk about what it means for us as humans to be sons of God as well. Right. So the begetting talk, when once we get our finger on what and how the son of God is the son of God, it illuminates for us how we are sons of God. So scripture talks about how we are uh, united with Christ. And that union with Christ is one, that that, that is how we are saved. We, through Christ's death and resurrection, we're saved. And so scripture uses this language of, uh, we're co-heirs with Christ. Everything that Christ has, he receives from the Father and then gives to us. But notice that there's a crucial key difference there, that the Son of God, like you said in that John 5 passage, has life in himself. So he shares the same divine life of the Father by nature. So he is begotten by the Father in the same way that you, Brian, when you have a child, you beget them, beget, begot, beget, beget them. You begetted them. <laughs> Bugatti. Bugatti them. You beget them and they are the same kind of thing that you are, right. right? In a different way than if you made a statue of yourself, there would just be similar. It would share some features, but it's not the same kind of thing. The son of God is the same kind of substance as the father. We are not. Right. We're made in the image of God. Right. So that's like you making a statue in your image, which right. will share some of your features. But notice that grace is so amazing in that God takes the images of God, the things that he's created that are not the same nature as him, he's adopted them into his family. Right. He's, it's, it's like you, it's like the story of Pinocchio, like making something, breathing life into it, and then making it part of your family. I've never heard the story of redemption so trite as that, but right. it gets the idea across, right? If you made something in your image and then included it into your family, it's kind of strange, but it is like, like it, it's kind of like th that is what grace is because you're just doing something so radical and insane to include these tiny little specks of flesh 
that they're in your image, but they're so totally radically unlike you, and you're incorporating them into the divine family, making them co-heirs with the actual son of God, and giving them the title son of God by adoption rather than nature. And and again, that that adoption nature thing is so key, like you were saying, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the love he ha- the love the Father has for the Son is by nature, yes. by being the Son is God, and but us, it's by grace because mm-hmm. God doesn't owe these creatures right. the kind of love that He shows His Son, and yet mm-hmm. not only does He do that and go forth toward Adam and speak to him and create a, a relationship with him, yeah, He also redeems him. Like you were saying, and and he takes our Pinocchios and brings them to life. Like he he takes these creatures who not only are lesser than him but have rebelled against him, hmm. and he breathes life back into them. By how does he do it? By sending his son to be one of them. I mean, yeah. that's the amazing thing and the mystery of the incarnation. <clears throat> and, and and you know, I mean, that's a whole other podcast which we have done, we do, yeah. which you can which find in the archives, <laughs> right? But uh, and he says. And this is precisely what Christianity is about. I was just going to read that one. (laughs) This world is a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues and there is a rumor going around the shop that some of us are someday going to come to life. I love that. And that's, I mean. It makes you think of that. The last scene in the the line, the witch in the wardrobe, where Aslan comes back from the dead, goes into the witch's palace and breathes on all of the the narnians that have been frozen made into stone and he gives them life there that's exactly the same image there that the the sculpture shop all of these statues are being actually made real being given life and you look at first corinthians 15 where paul talks about the resurrection body Mm -hmm. and he talks about how there's a relationship between our body now and the future one but it's not a we won't exactly be like we are now. Right. Yeah. And you think about that with a sculpture becoming a real person, it's the same mold, yeah. shape, but but now it's alive. But, but different. Yeah. I mean, the, there, there's a it's, it's of a different nature now. And well, I, mean, I don't know. If, well, yeah. I mean, in a sense, yeah, it, it's yeah. it's a completely different kind of creature, even mm-hmm. though it looks relatively the same. But That's now right. it's it's animated by something. Yeah. And that is, I think, when you think about conversion and ultimately our glorification, when when, when Jesus returns and resurrects us and changes us. That's more of the the feel of what's going to be like hmm. of these sculptures of clay coming to life and having vitality yeah. in them that they didn't have before. That's exciting. That'll preach. <laughs> That'll preach. But thank you guys for listening. Uh, as always, leave a review, subscribe to the podcast, share with your friends, keep reading with us, get a copy of your Christianity. Start reading it. You will not regret it. And you're going to read this book for many years to come, hopefully more than once. It's true. And uh, we want to be teachers and helpers along the way. So appreciate you guys listening.